I think it was yesterday morning. Uh, you have to understand, my, my office at home is a loft, and so it kind of has rails on both sides of it. It's kind of like a bridge that goes over the downstairs. And so it falls off on the front side and it falls off on the back side. And uh, I was sitting at my desk first thing in the morning. I look up in the corner, the part that's over, you know, all the way downstairs, and there up in the corner, hanging upside down, like they do like bats, is a daddy long leg spider. You know those guys? I guess they're actually called cellar spiders. I just found that out, but we always call them daddy long legs. So he's hanging there. The web's invisible. You can't see it. So you just see him hanging like he's in midair, completely motionless. And I just look at him for a couple of minutes and think, nothing I can do about that. <laughs> it's 20 feet up to, to get to him. So I just leave him alone. As I was coming back during the day and doing more work and taking breaks and coming back, I look up and he's still there and he's still there. He's still there. Motionless. I'm starting to think, this guy's dead. He just died up there, you know? So that last night, when I finally get up there to finish work on the message this morning, I look up, and there he is, still hanging exactly where he was. So I blew on him as hard as I could from my desk and just made enough of a motion that he moved a leg. And it's just like, okay, he's still alive. But what a life he's got carved out for himself, right? <laughs> Think about this. What does a spider do? spins his crooked, crazy web that those guys spin and just hangs there completely motionless all day long until something disturbs the web and then he eats it. And then he comes back and he hangs there all day long, every day, rain or shine. He's just hanging there in the web. I'm sure he takes some time off once in a while to go make some little spiders and then he comes back and just hangs there upside down, motionless, all day long. And I was thinking... What is the purpose of that? <laughs> What's the purpose of a spider? I mean, just hanging there, basically just living to stay alive. And that, that's it. I mean, is, is there really any purpose? Now, I know, you know, spiders have a place in the ecosystem. And actually, some people say, you know, if you have house spiders that are benign like that, just leave them be. Because they're eating all the other insects that you don't want, like fleas and mosquitoes and stuff. So yeah, they have a place in the in you know in the ecosystem and they keep the bug population down. But you know, as an individual spider, how fulfilling would that life be? Just hanging up the, upside down all the time. As COVID continues on and I'm doing more and more counseling for people, what I'm hearing people describe their lives during COVID is as Groundhog Day. Now, do you all know the reference to that, the, the movie Groundhog Day, where basically uh, Bill Murray got stuck in a loop, and every day was the same day, and the same exact things would happen over and over and over. Hundreds, thousands, he spent years in that loop before he finally, and it was Groundhog Day. So we understand that, you know? We're just kind of hanging upside down every day during COVID, doing the same thing in our homes, because so many of the things that we used to do to break up that time to make it feel like there was more connection and purpose and meaning, and those have been stripped away from us. So it's Groundhog Day, and it's a feeling of purposelessness, right? And connected with that purposelessness is these rising feelings of depression, of, of stress, of anxiety, stress in relationships, as all that depression and all that, that angst is now going sideways out into relationships, you know, even before COVID struck, the suicide rate in the United States was rising. And I don't know if you were aware of that or the stats with that. But actually, suicide in the United States increased 24% in the last 20 years. And that's across the board. 
but increased 30% for people aged 35 to 64. So it was more pronounced in the older ages. And the highest increase, and no one can really figure this out yet, was in women aged 60 to 64. Suicide rates of women between 60 and 64 increased 60%, 60% in the last 20 years, and no one really knows why, which is kind of weird because men usually outpace women at least two to one in suicides. But here's really the kicker for me, that suicide is now the second leading cause of death between young adults between the ages of 15 and 34. Second leading cause of death. And it's the third leading cause of death in kids aged 10 to 14. And something is going on here. And not only that, all the statisticians say that most likely the suicides are underreported because there's still such a stigma attached to suicide and people don't want to talk about it. They don't want to admit it. And then you add on to that what are being called deaths of despair, which are deaths uh, due to overdose and and alcohol and, and other types of practices that eventually will kill you. That has created the first drop in the life expectancy in the United States in 100 years. And this is before COVID hit. And now COVID hits and is amplifying everything that we've got, whether it's good or whether it's bad. And if there are any cracks in your fish, in, in, your, in your infrastructure, cracks in your foundation, cracks in your relationship, then those are all going to come to the surface. And we're also seeing the strengths of people also coming to the surface at the same time. But it amplifies everything that's there. And this sense of meaninglessness, this sense of purposelessness that may have been present before is now really coming to the surface. I've talked to several couples where it's been really interesting. One of them takes COVID very seriously, and the other does not at all, really, or just a little bit. And that, just that stress of having two different ways of looking at COVID is huge in that relationship. And it really is causing big problems, not only in married couples, but also in roommates and, and, and just family members. And there was a couple of couples where one spouse took COVID so seriously that they were literally obsessed with it. Watching the news all day long, checking the numbers, and it's like every conversation they had, it needed to be about COVID. And if the other spouse wasn't going to talk about COVID, then it was like a big fight because they didn't care. Why in the world would someone go to those lengths? You know, it's almost as if, maybe, that COVID is becoming the purpose when there seems to be so little purpose. It's something to grab onto. It's something that you can track. It's something that maybe you can get your arms around and create some edges to in an otherwise chaotic and uncontrollable situation where what's coming to the surface is this sense of purposelessness. What is my purpose? What is meaning? It's Groundhog Day. Every day I just get up and I do the same thing and it's all kind of graying out. You know? Why is suicide rising in our country even before this crisis hit us? I believe it's proceeding from a profound, rising lack of the sense of purpose and the sense of meaning in our people. And connected to that, a lack of a sense of identity. Who are we as individuals? Who are we as people? And why is there a lack of meaning and purpose? Obviously, there's going to be many reasons for that. But generally speaking, there's an increasing lack of connection. There's an increasing lack of a sense of space in our country, in modern Western civilization. 
more disconnection, people moving into separate rooms with personal electronics, more and more of this disconnection. And with that is this lack of a sense of place. How do I fit in? You know, in ancient cultures and aboriginal cultures, they were very finely structured. Everybody knew where they were in the food chain. Everybody knew where they, where they were in the hierarchy. And even if you were in the lower parts of the hierarchy, you still knew where you were and you knew what your place was. You had a place to stand. And you knew what your contribution was to the tribe, to the group. This was what you did. This was your contribution. We don't have that anymore. And that contribution to the survival of the group gave certain purpose and meaning to life because it was within the group. And if you think about it, in the ancient world and even in modern aboriginal worlds, there's really no mirrors there was certainly no way to take a photograph in the ancient world, right? No way to take a photograph in some aboriginal tribes right now. People went their whole lives without ever seeing their own face. Now, I just want you to think about that for a second, the impact that that would have. If you went your whole life not knowing how you looked, but just how everyone else looked, people reacting to you, and you didn't know. Did you ever play Indian poker? We used to play Indian poker when we were in high school. You know, you get so many cards in your hand, you get so many cards down, and then the last card you lick and stick on your forehead without looking at it. So everybody else can see the card, but you can't see the card, but you can see everybody else. Think of going your whole life that way without ever seeing your own face, only the face of the tribe. Yeah, you could get an occasional glimpse out in a stream or in a pool of water, and of course there were ways of reflecting, at least the rich had those, but the intense change that that would make in your own sense of identity, how you would identify more with the people around you, with the group, than you did with yourself. Now contrast that with our society today where we obsessed with taking selfies. People are taking selfies all the time and then posting them and looking at them. We're all obsessed with our looks and checking our looks multiple times per day. The focus on the individual as opposed to the group has taken the pendulum and pulled it so far to the other side that our primary ID now is only on ourself rather than the family, rather than the tribe. But here's the kicker. Purpose and meaning for a human being comes from our identification and our connection with each other. When Jesus was asked who he was, his best description of his identity was, I and the Father are one. He only connected his identity to his Father's identity. He said over and over, I'm nothing of myself. It's all the Father. And he connected his identity to the identity of everyone that he was with and every single person who crossed his path. He was as one with that person and connected with that person, no matter who they were. Neighbor, enemy, didn't matter. Foreign, domestic, didn't matter. This is who he was. Our identity comes from each other. It comes from maintaining the life and the welfare of our group, of our tribe, of our family. That's where we're going to find a sense of meaning and purpose. But to live as a daddy long legs, just hanging in the corner, preserving our own life, to keep on living, that feels meaningless, purposeless. And it will stay that way until we find ourselves in service in some way to others. And this is why Jesus focused so much on service. 
Everything was about service to Jesus. Everything was about loving the enemy, loving each other in such a way that we would find this way to kingdom, what he called kingdom, was the meaning and purpose and the identity that revolves around connection, revolves around community, the submission to a greater good, losing yourself in that greater good, everything Jesus was talking about. Because he knew without this, there is no kingdom. Without this, there is no sense of our connection in our life with our Father, with God, and our sense of meaning and purpose that fends off the sense of despair, that fends off the depression. That's what this is all about. And of course, it was expressed as love. Of course. Why is this COVID crisis so devastating to so many of us? Because in the absence of having any genuine connection, in the absence of having any genuine meaning and purpose, we have manufactured meaning and purpose. And all that's been stripped away. Think of the way that we identify with our business, with our work. Think of the way we identify with our sports team, with entertainment figures. And all of that has been taken away. So that manufactured illusion of meaning and purpose has now been systematically and institutionally disappeared. Now what do we do? See what's going on? Without this sense of connection, without our ID, our identity as part of and entwined with every other person that we meet and every other person that we live with, we have a sense of just being completely lost. And in other words, without an awareness of presence to our connection with others, we feel completely lost. What I wanted to do with you this morning to see if we can drive this point home and make it applicable to each one of us is to engage in a little midrash with you. And I don't know if you're familiar with that word, midrash. It's a Hebrew word. And the Hebrews had a very different way of interpreting scripture. You know, we just interpret just off the top line the literal meaning, and it has to be absolutely correct and accurate, and it has to be connected in context. But the Hebrews had four different levels and they were all simultaneous. They're all vertical, these levels of meaning. So each passage could have four different ways that it could be interpreted. And Hebrews love acronyms because, well, Hebrew is all consonant. It's consonants anyway. And so it was P-R-D-S in our alphabet. And it was um, the pardes, if you add the vowel sounds, which means garden, was the name of this, this type of, of uh, interpretation. And the top level, which was just the literal level, the only one that we typically use uh, in, in our biblical interpretation was called Peshat, which just means simple. It's just the, the straight literal meaning right off the top level. The R was Ramez, which was the secret, the, the, not the secret, it was the hint. And so this was the allegorical meaning or a hidden meaning that you could dig into a little bit more. The third one was Drash or Midrash, which is the search. And that would be to dig deeper into the text and look beyond the words of the text, beneath the words of the text, behind the words of the text, even between the lines of the text, looking at what was not said as much as what was said in order to take the, the passage under consideration and apply it and connect it to the realities of today. You have the unchanging biblical text from ancient times, but how do you apply it to today? Now, in truth, this is what every 
pastor does in, in, a, in a Monday message or a Sunday message. We're trying to connect how we apply this to our lives. But for the Hebrews, this was a legitimate way of interpreting Scripture as well. The last one, the S, was the sod or the secret, and that got into the, the esoteric and kind of the biblical code kind of uh, different ways of looking at Scripture. But Midrash, that's what we want to look at today. Is there a way that we can take a look at a text that is typically interpreted one way, but apply it to what's going on right now? And I want to read, and you can all read with me, it's Matthew 26, starting at verse 36. And this is Jesus in the garden. This is right after the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, and before the events of Good Friday. And Jesus came with them, with who? With the apostles who, and everyone who was with him in the Lord's Supper. They all got up and left and went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and he began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. You know, these words that are so spare, but just take a moment and listen to those three sentences. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Grieve to the point of death. Try to imagine what you would be like in a state like that. Grieve to the point that you just wanted to die. And he went a little beyond them, and he fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came back to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again a second time, and he prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again, and he went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Now, typically, when we take a look at this, it's really easy for us to over-spiritualize this passage and forget that Jesus was fully human, was fully a man. What is going on in this story? If we can really take a deeper look, Jesus is in complete distress. He's freaking out. He knows what is coming, and he doesn't want to do it. How much more natural could that be under the circumstances? He is focused on the future now. He's focused on what is going to happen as soon as he gets taken into custody, which means he's no longer in the present moment. He's focused out there, and he is hurting. He's despairing. He's at the point that he would rather just die than go through all of this. This is what is between the lines, is not spoken, is present in the scripture if we just take time to pull it out. Jesus is terrified. Luke tells us that he actually sweat blood during the night. That's an actual medical condition. 
if I can say it right, hematidrosis, hematidrosis. Literally, the capillaries burst under the skin and get mixed with the sweat when there is enough anguish and distress and the blood pressure is going through the roof. He's terrified. He's lost connection with his father. This idea of him trying to get his will back in connection with his father's will is part of that expression of he's no longer in connection. He's out of connection. He's focused on the future. And he's craving human connection. Have you ever had a child say, will you stay with me until I fall asleep? This is Jesus. He doesn't want to be alone. He takes his three closest friends with him, and he wants them to be with him in his time of distress, and they keep falling asleep. They cannot keep their eyes open. And he's feeling abandoned even by them. It's kind of sanitized here, but imagine what Jesus is feeling when he comes back, and they can't even just sit with him for one hour while he prays. This is where he's at. His closest friends, his father, not connecting with him. But after praying all night, he finally finds the confluence. He finally comes back. Your will, not mine. And from that point on, he can go and he can continue with everything that needs to happen. You see, it's all about presence. All about presence. Jesus bringing himself back into presence with his father, craving the presence of his friends when he couldn't find it within himself and being denied. Back to greater purpose, back to a sense of meaning, back to a sense of identity once again. If his identity was in the father and he lost that, imagine what that felt like. This is why Jesus is all about presence. This is why Jesus' way is all about presence always expressed as love for one another, but really this is what it's all about. Love is not possible without presence. To be aware of the oneness, to be aware of the connection with each other is the love. What flows out of that awareness of connection and presence is the behavior that we call loving and is the the emotion that we call love. But it starts with connection. It starts with oneness. This is why Jesus is always working to redefine the law because the people thought that the law could get them into contact with their father, in connection with their father, the approval of their father, but we can obey the law without any awareness and any presence at all. We do it all the time, don't we? Mindlessly applying these one-size-fits-all sets of rules, these zero-tolerance policies that become absurd on their face. There's going to be no knives in school, and so the little kid gets pulled off because he has a little plastic butter knife to put peanut butter on his sandwich. But when we just go to the law, when we just try to mindlessly obey as if that's going to do anything at all, we realize that this is a completely loveless position, a disconnected position, a position that doesn't need any presence. We never really see each other if all we're doing is following the law. Love requires the full presence to see what love requires. If we don't bring ourselves to each circumstance, each moment fully present, and wait to see what love actually requires, 
we're obviously going to be doing more damage than good if we try to bring a preset condition into everything that we do and everything that we connect with and every choice that we make. Love requires full presence to see what love requires. There's so many people right now that I've been talking to that are faced with really difficult decisions that they have to make. And it seems like so many times all the good decisions are gone and all that's left are bad decisions and trying to choose the lesser of the evils, trying to choose the lesser of the harm. There's Sophie's choices, if you know that illusion. There's no clear right and wrong sometimes in the choices. When a parent is faced with how much support to give their drug-addicted son or daughter, whether to pull the plug on them in terms of resources, whether to kick them out of the house, whether to do any of the things that tough love required, all the time being pulled by their own emotions and the reality of, of, the, of the, the, the addiction, also being pulled by other family members and friends that are no short of giving advice, right? That you should do this and you should do that. And maybe the 12 steps are going and they're just like on a rack, just being pulled apart by all of these different and competing ideas and emotions. What is the choice that needs to be made? How do you make that choice? And maybe it's not an addiction, but it's a toxic loved one, a toxic family member. Maybe it's the COVID crisis itself, which is creating such stress within the family that the family members are are faced with these choices. How do we deal with this? How do we get through this when we don't even know how much longer it's supposed to go? Pulled apart by this need, by this pain, by this obligation, by the advice, by the condemnation. The law is no help here. How is the law going to help? The law is just going to impart a rule? Does that rule really apply in this particular situation? Can we just apply that rule knowing that we're going to have to live with the consequences of whatever happens because of this choice? Jesus has to make difficult decisions as well. How does he make the decisions that he needs to make? Maybe we can learn something from him. What a concept, huh? Let's take a look at John 11, starting right at verse 1. Kind of a longest passage, but let's just read through it, and then let's break it down a little bit, because I think in here we can start to see how Jesus is making the decisions that he needs to make. And this is about Jesus and Lazarus when he raises him from the dead. And typically when we think about this passage, it's all about the miracle, Everything is focused on the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. But if we apply the Midrash to it, we're going to see that maybe there's another focus point that we can put on this that is going to really be able to inform our lives. Because most of us aren't planning on raising anyone from the dead anytime soon, but we still have to make decisions, right? Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place he was. All right, there's one decision. We kind of cock our head at a little bit. And then after he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? And Jesus answered, and this is the maddening way that Jesus answers, right? 
Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And then he said, this he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that he may, I may awaken him out of sleep. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he's going to recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore, Thomas, who is also called Didymus, which means twin, he said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we, we may die with him. And of course, he meant Jesus. He figured Jesus is going to get stoned. We're going to get stoned with him, but here we go. So when Jesus came, this is to Bethany, he found that he had already been in the tomb, Lazarus, for four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them during their brother concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the home. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am and the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And when she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and calling for you. Wouldn't that be cool? The teacher is here and calling for you. Ah. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And the shortest sentence in the Bible, Jesus wept. There's a series of decisions that Jesus has to make here. How does he make them? Some of the decisions seem off and kind of strange, you know? Why did he stay two more days after he heard that Lazarus was so deathly ill? Now, usually we look at this in the light of the miracle, and there's a lot of textual evidence why we would think that. And so Jesus knows what he's going to do. He wants to let Lazarus die so that he can raise him from the grave to show who he is. That's usually the way we look at it. But in the previous chapter, Jesus, chapter 10, ends with Jesus Transjordan. He has gone across the Jordan, and he's teaching there. And many people are flocking to him, learning from him, being baptized in the river. He's there in the midst of all that work. These are the people who are right in front of him at the time he gets this word. What does love require at a time like this? 
See, I think this is what Jesus is always asking every time he needs to make a decision. What does love require? What does presence show me that love requires? What is it that my purpose is all about, that this meaning of this life is all about? Why am I here? And I think Jesus realized also he needed to be present to these people. He wasn't done there yet. His work was not done. The people still needed him. And so that urgency, that circumstance, that moment took precedence because that's the moment that he was in. That's the moment that he was present to. That's the moment that he reacted to. And he stays two more days to be present to them. And then he decides to return to Judea. And his disciples, they go apoplectic. Don't you realize what in the heck is going on here? They want to stone you. This is, this is a death sentence to go back. Why would you do that? And then he says this crazy thing, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone who walks in the day, does not, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But anyone who walks in the night stumbles because the light is not in them. It's a difficult saying. It's one of Jesus' famous kind of non sequiturs. But if you really parse it, what is he saying? Jews divided the day into two 12-hour sections, 12 hours of light, 12 hours of night. He's saying, this is the 12 hours of my life. This is what I have to work with. This is why I'm here. This is my meaning. This is my purpose. I can't be deterred by anything except to continue on and be present to the things that I'm supposed to be present to while it's still light, while I'm still here, while I'm still present. And so he returns despite the death threats. This is the greater purpose. This is what love requires him to do. And then when he gets there, he's first greeted by Martha. Now, if you remember the story between Martha and Mary, right? Martha is the practical one. She's the intellectual one. She's the one who's making the meals and, and you know, planning everything and making sure that everyone is having a good experience in her home. Mary is the intuitive one. She's the empath. She's the one who's just sitting at Jesus' feet doing no work whatsoever that ticks Martha off. You've got these two sisters, these two personalities. Martha is the one that he sees first, the intellectual, the practical one. And so what does he do? How does he react to her? Martha and Mary tell him the exact same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, and yet his reaction to the two women is completely different. Because what does love require for Martha? It requires an answer that she can understand, that her intellect can understand, something that she can work through. That is what is going to give her the greatest amount of peace besides his presence alone. But his presence to her, seeing her, knowing her, responded to her as she needed to be responded to. That's what love required. But when Mary comes, he just weeps with her. And people have always asked, why would he weep when he knows in the next breath he's going to raise her brother from the dead? Because in that moment, that's what love required. Because he was present to Mary. And that's what Mary needed. She needed him there, present, weeping with her. Jesus' choices can sometimes seem so random and so odd until we realize that they're all a function of complete presence to the moment. 
He's not bound by rules that are static. In fact, after he is dead, what do the angels say to the women who come? Why are you seeking the living among the dead? The dead are static. They don't move anymore. The spirit is always moving, always alive, moving into presence. Jesus is not going to deal with the rules except as a guide. But in each instance, it's going to be a function of his complete presence to the moment because it's only with presence to the moment that we can make loving choices at all, choices that serve and protect. How can we do that if we can't see, if we're not present to the person that we're there with? We may have to break rules in order to do what love requires. And we may have to accept the punishment and the condemnation of breaking those rules and tales. But that's what love requires. Out of this presence, out of this willingness to be put in those vulnerable positions, gives us a sense of meaning and purpose, which fends off the despair and the depression that we see around us so much today. It's all about presence. I think I've said in here so many times, the spiritual journey is 90% presence. That's why contemplative spirituality is all about building the awareness that gives us the presence. Because without that, we can't go any further. Without that, we can never experience love. And without that, we can never enter kingdom. Think about this for a second. How much time during the day do you spend not thinking about the thing that you're actually doing? How much time do you spend per day with your mind wandering away from the thing that is actually the task at hand, the conversation that you're having right now? How many of you are sitting here listening to me and you haven't heard the last five paragraphs of what I said? That's mind-wandering. How much time during the day as a percentage do you spend wandering off what you're actually doing, not present to what you're actually doing. Now, statistically, it's at least half of you, or half the time. But in the people that I've actually talked to, it's more like 80 or 90% of the time. And especially when you get into addicts and alcoholics, it's higher than that. I've heard people say, I practically spend no time actually thinking about the thing I'm doing. My mind is always spinning somewhere. But even if it's half the time, now think about when your mind is wandering, what is the content of the thoughts that you're wandering with? Are they positive or negative? They're almost always negative. Those are the things we obsess over. Those are the things we think about. It's not the pleasant things that we usually ruminate over that wear a rut in our brain over and over again. It's usually the negative things, the things that are not done, the things that are scaring us. It's all about fear, right? It's the things that distress us. It's the things that we're worrying about. It's the politics. It's the election. It's macro. It's micro. It's whatever, but it's negative. So if you're spending more than half your time and maybe up to 80 or 90% of your time thinking about something other than what you're doing in the moment, and 80 or 90% of that content is negative, what do you think the experience of your life is going to be like? It doesn't matter what your moments are like. You will be experiencing them negatively because you're not there. And if you think about it, most of our moments are okay. There are very few moments that contain true pain. 
Most of our moments are okay. It's what we bring to the moment that colors it. Why does Jesus say don't judge? Don't judge the moment. Let the moment speak for itself. Let the moment be what it is. Let the person in front of you be who she or he is. Don't judge them either. Allow yourself to be completely present to this moment. When we're not present to the moment, typically we are swimming in negativity, unable to connect, to serve, or to love, unable to find our meaning or our purpose. I hear about family members all the time that are lashing out to each other, blaming each other, criticizing each other, abusing each other, not even the slightest awareness of what they are doing while they're doing it, feeling justified often in what they are doing. This is Jesus on the cross. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. They literally don't know what they're doing, but the damage that they're doing because they're not present, because they're not aware, because they can't see that this feeling that is triggering me so acutely is not that person's fault. It's here that I need to change. If we're only conscious of the practice of presence, if we would only be conscious to the practice of presence, that's what can take us to love. That's what can take us to connection. That's what we talk about contemplative spirituality, setting aside that time to practice presence enough so that we can extend it throughout our day. This is the crux of it. This is the crisis of our times. Our Western world has gotten so noisy, it has gotten so individualistic, and it has gotten so scattered that we never have a silent moment unless we carve it out intentionally. And one of the interesting things about COVID, it, it has quieted down our lives quite a bit. It has taken us down the road of that journey for quite a bit. Will we use it as a platform to spring off and take another few steps down the road and down this journey? Or are we just going to sit and complain about it and rage at the machine? Because we need to do this work anyway. Ask yourself how you're doing. How are you doing with all of this? Are you feeling like Daddy Longlegs hanging inverted in the corner? Are you feeling like the groundhog, depressed, anxious, purposeless? Think of your day. How do you spend your day? How do you spend your weeks? Are they alone? Are they isolated? Are there hours and hours of news and social media that you engage in that just fuels more and more of that negative cycle? How much thinking are you doing on the thing that you're actually doing? And how much do you dwell on the negative? How much are you of service to the other people in your life? The ones that you just encounter, the ones that you are living with. Is your focus to leave them better than you found them at every encounter? Are you doing that? Are you conscious of doing that? If we can turn this around, if we can use presence as kind of the divining rod, you know, that, that you find water with, as a barometer for how we're doing, and realize when we're getting out of whack, when we are getting into depression, when we're feeling the stress, when we find ourselves at odds with our family members, with our spouses, with the people at the supermarket, you know, can we come back to presence and find something in the moment that connects us back to meaning and back to purpose. 
we got to turn off the news. we got to get off of social media. We need to begin to practice presence again because this is the only way that we can enter Jesus' kingdom and find the meaning and the purpose and identity that will show us who we really are. That's what Jesus is trying to give for us, trying to show us how we just need to participate. Presence, all about presence. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being present to us. Thank you for showing how this is done. Literally, if you weren't present to us in every millisecond, we would cease to exist. Your presence is the gold standard for us. As human beings, we won't hit it, but you know that, and you have patience for that. Help us more and more to move into the presence. Help us more and more to become aware of when we have wandered off topic and we can come back and come back and come back. And in that, find the well-being, find the connection, find the sense of purpose again, meaning again, that fends off everything that seeks to overwhelm us. Father, help us to see that this is on us now. You have given us everything that we need. It's our choice that matters. What are we going to choose? Are we going to choose you? Are we going to choose each other? To see our identity in each other? To forget our own faces as we just celebrate the faces that are around us? And come to this life in a completely different way that we can celebrate regardless of our circumstances. Once again, Father, thank you for doing this first. Thank you for being this first to show us how we can enter in with you. Never let us forget. We can only love or do any of this because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen, everyone. Would you stand? Everyone at home, would you stand?